Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Robert M. Price here. Uh, I guess it's been a while, maybe too long since the last batch of geeks, but uh, that's mainly because I've been doing a frenzy of writing, uh, fiction writing. I've done about six uh, fantasy and horror stories in the last month or so. Great, great fun. And I'll probably have more to say about that uh, eventually. But I want to get right into some Bible geek questions. But before that, let me just thank Jason and the other great guys at uh, Mythicist Milwaukee who make this possible. Otherwise, you know, no, no geek in at all. So, okay, Brian says, when did the phrase word of God come to be associated with the Bible? This is a phrase that is used to defend the inerrancy of the Bible, such as the psalm or psalms in which God's every word is described as perfect. Uh, I don't know. It's a real good question. I think it's uh, already there in the pretty early church, but uh, it seems to me that to claim the Bible as the Word of God as a warrant for believing in its inerrancy, since uh, if it's the Word of God, how could God be mistaken? You know, how could he be asleep at the switch? How could he make mistakes like I do all the time? Uh, well, look, they you decide to call this whole motley crew of ancient writings the Word of God, so you are lending it this authority. Uh, it's, it's all a circular thing. Uh, it seems to me there is no place uh, where in the Bible where the phrase the Word of God or the Word of the Lord refers to a written text. Even when the prophets say, I hear the Word of Yahweh, what we have is a recording of uh, someone who ostensibly said this about their oral message, right? And uh, you you do have a couple of, in First Peter and First Timothy, a couple of New Testament statements about the Old Testament as a body, as it was understood by the writer, neither of whom gives us a table of contents. And that is kind of important because it was rather late in the first century or early in the second when the Jewish canon, to which they would have been referring, uh, was defined and delimited. Uh, but uh, word of God, is, though the, the phrase, of course, does occur in the Bible, if you look closely, it's always talking about the promise of God. Uh, my word will not return unto me void. That is, you know, ineffective, won't bounce back. Well, what word is that? Well, God's promise, if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. His command, if he commands that something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Nobody is powerful enough 
enough to gainsay him or prevent his will from being done. That's the Word of God. In the New Testament, the Word of God is often the preaching of God, and uh, that's uh, like the Word of God is quick and powerful. Or in First Thessalonians, you received our message uh, for what it was, namely the Word of God, that is, the message of God. Uh, and so in my uh, human Bible, New Testament, and pre-Nicene New Testament, I don't leave it as the Word of God. Uh, I uh, try to, to uh, fit it in with the context and say the command of God, the promise of God, the law of God, and all of that, uh, because it's just not used that I know of. I, I, as always, I welcome corrections, but it's not used to uh, denominate the Bible, uh, though I think people did do that uh, uh, early on. I just don't see it in the New Testament. Um, also, do you have much familiarity with the King James-only movement? It's very strange to me, and that although it says the Bible is inerrant in Elizabethan English, uh, it still re uh, insists on using present-day definitions of words such as study, you know, study thyself, study to show thyself approved, uh, science, meaning knowledge, and degree, as in a college degree, uh, that clearly had different meanings in 1611. Yeah, the same thing comes up with the Book of Mormon, right, when... Uh, Joseph Smith mentions steel or, or horses, things that wouldn't have been in the North American continent uh, at the time of the Nephites and all that. And by the way, if you want to hear a new explanation of who the Nephites and the Lamanites were, uh, you uh, might enjoy reading my uh, Simon of Gitta story, which isn't out yet, uh, called The Secret of Nephren Ka, which uh, will be in my uh, Sword and Sorcery anthology from Ulfar Press. Don't quite know when yet. Uh, the book will be called The Mighty Warriors. Uh, it's fun to do stuff with Mormon mythology, because Mormon mythology is so fascinating and fun. Anyway, uh, they try to sidestep the problem by saying, well, uh, it uh, didn't mean the same thing then, or, or, or worse yet, it's a mistranslation. Whoops! Uh, you admit that for a split second in the whole Book of Mormon's inerrancy is down the drain, right? Uh, why would anybody think the King James is the normative Bible? Well, the two versions of this, at least, uh, the two I know of are, uh, number one, the Textus Receptus, basically the, the, um, the received text, the authorized version of, in the 17th century when the King James was translated. That is basically that boils down to the Byzantine text type as opposed to... Uh, uh, Caesarean and uh, Alexandrian and so forth, uh, the family of manuscripts that all are interrelated, uh, that uh, the, the, the Byzantine text is the most accurate reflection of the, uh, of the original, and that uh, this is the text that the King James translators used. So you, you could say, oh, go ahead and have a new King James version. That's what that is, right? That it's a translation of the same text they used for the King James, but uh, they don't mind modernizing the language. So th that's uh, a possible King James-only 
approach, though I think it's very difficult to argue that convincingly. Um, I don't think anybody really has, at least to my satisfaction. Of course, you'd have to look into it yourself to see what you think. Um, but the other kind is is really weird, uh, where it is the authorized 1611 King James Version that is the inspired Bible, the only one that Christians ought to use. I've read a couple of pamphlets from advocates of this view, and they have arguments like you shouldn't even modernize the language because having to uh, decode it is a way of sharpening your spiritual acuity. Oh, brother. Uh, it, it just seems strange uh, to me. And of course, there's the popular joke uh, that, uh, well, if the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. I don't know if anybody really thinks that, but uh, if they do, it's it's just laughable ignorance. Um, like this basketball player, I don't know who it was, uh, 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 who recently said they figured that the earth is flat. Uh, yeah. Uh, or one of the ladies on The View, she said uh, she didn't think the verdict was in yet on the shape of the earth. Oh, boy. Um, so it's, uh, they're kind of stuck with this, that if, you, and, and there are, I think, I used to say this is a joke, that fundamentalist Bible colleges used to, uh, should have uh, courses not in Greek, but in Elizabethan English, and then I heard one of them did, though you never know. I mean, jokes become rumors, too. But uh, there's... Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of strange things going on there. But the psychology of this is very clear, I think, that these are the views of people raised on the King James Bible. It's what they memorized in Sunday school. To them, it is the Bible. And to start to suggest in however trivial a way that as it stands, uh, the Bible you know, uh, if if uh, it is to be modified, if it requires any kind of change at all to be closer to the truth, you're, you're just uh, letting the camel's nose under the tent flap. Where's it going to end? Uh, if you uh, start saying, wait a minute, uh, Isaiah 7.14 doesn't actually, shouldn't be translated, uh, the virgin shall conceive, it It uh, should be the uh, the young woman uh, uh, will conceive, oh no you don't. Uh, you, what? Uh, they, Luke didn't really have Jesus say, Father forgive them, they know not what they do, not just a darn minute. Uh, you, you can't start chipping away at the Bible, the one I learned to clutch as a teddy bear, a security blanket. I don't mean to ridicule it, though. I just can't help it being a kind of a smartass. Um, but uh, I think that's what's going on. The minute you start saying, well, maybe we can, we can criticize the Bible I know, uh, then it'll never stop, and the Bible's authority will be destroyed. It's got to be all or nothing. And uh, in a sense, they're right. I mean, it's it's... It is a kind of a slippery slope, but 
most people, evangelicals especially, don't take it that way. They're they're willing to be realistic enough to say, look, okay, uh, there. It's obvious there are differences. I mean, if you want to say the Byzantine text is the the uh, right one because God would have preserved His word, well, what happened with the Alexandrian and Caesarean and other texts? Why do you let them get screwed up? Right. That's uh, you really don't have a. a coherent view there uh and uh uh the uh so i mean that's that's automatically a problem but evangelicals generally figure no it's obvious there are textual corruptions we just got to find them and and root them out and in fact uh some of the earliest textual critics were plymouth brethren because they said look we believe the bible is the inspired word of god as we believe in verbal inspiration well we better get straight which words he inspired and which ones he didn't right i mean it makes some difference whether jesus commanded his followers to handle poisonous snakes right uh and uh, you you if you've been bitten by one during some appalachian church service it might interest you to know <laughs> as charlie manson once said <laughs> you're just making a fool of yourself partner uh that uh, jesus never asked you to do that it's your fault and uh so yeah it, it could have practical uh results and that might be a good thing right you, you don't want to make the word of man into the word of god right and that's what textual criticism uh, in the hands of evangelical like gordon fee and others bruce metzger that's what they're trying to do uh and uh okay so they there's a good conservative reason for doing that uh also if you know greek which is like a you know a thing you gotta do if you're gonna be a new testament scholar or hebrew old testament you can't go on pretending that uh, there's a one-for-one one verbal correspondence between those languages in English. You, you immediately see that, as with any translation of anything from one language to another, there's a range of possibilities, of options for translating. And so I think the King James thing has uh, has shrunk and withered. I, I could be wrong. I mean, that's really a question you'd have to survey people on, but I just have to think it has become a fossil in a time when there are so many popular Bible translations among conservative evangelicals. Um, from what I've read, the New International Version, not my favorite, the once it was, uh, that uh, that has kind of become the big evangelical Bible. And uh, so the King James thing is more and more marginalized. Uh, and uh, and then you the bottom drops out of it because you get the people that are, are ignorant of of the whole issue and uh the, to them the bible is whichever one they were given as a kid uh king james or not but as time goes by less and less of an issue and uh thank you brian uh we uh, have got a brian sir and uh, who is the next guy with the six questions why it's robert jace and uh, he says, uh, good afternoon, good abend, mein geekiness. Uh, there was recently a little kerfuffle in the news about vetting those trying to get into heaven, and it turned my mind to a different paradise, the Garden of Eden. 
Well, for convenience sake, let's ignore the fact that the story of the fall is a mishmash of contradictory stories edited together. I'd like your opinions on my following musings. Uh, one, the garden was made for the Elohim, that is, the gods, to use. What use would the gods have for trees of knowledge and or life, unless, of course, they were not omnipotent, omniscient beings as modern theology professes? We know from the earliest stories that the gods were more or less magically empowered humans, or one might say humanoids, uh, rather than the modern apologetic omni-everythings they're claimed to be today. Uh, clearly, the fruit from those trees was meant only for their consumption. Only the gods were to have rechargeable knowledge or eternal, that is, rechargeable life. After all, no other living beings have knowledge or live forever. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think you've, uh, I agree completely with this. It's just ridiculous to try to, uh, say that uh, Genesis is already saying what St. Anselm would say, what Thomas Aquinas would say. It's just absurd. God is pictured as Zeus and one among many gods, just like the Babylonian deities and so on. In fact, I find it laughable when some people I've debated have said that, look, the Bible's far beyond these pagan ideas that gods created human beings as slaves. <laughs> what do you think it means in Genesis where he made the man to tend the garden? and won't let him eat this, and will let him eat that, and then he shows up for a walk with them in the cool of the day, and they, they don't show up, and uh, and so God says, hey, where is everybody? Come on. Yeah, it's not modern or even ancient theology. I mean, it was a, excuse me, a long time ago when uh, Philo and uh, St. Augustine and others began to completely reinterpret biblical theism in the light of uh, Platonism. So, I mean, this was a, this is an ancient development, but uh, long after the writing of the Bible, and uh, they really, and what they did, what these philosophical theologians did was to um, change the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into the God of the philosophers, as uh, Pascal put it, and uh, alas, never the twain shall meet. Um, and right, you're right. It's just like the Greek gods ate ambrosia and drank nectar, uh, they uh, so did Yahweh and the other gods uh, eat the fruit of of life, which kept them going. And the tree of knowledge, well, the the bottom line on that is it's carnal knowledge and reproduction. And of course, gods did that too. They just didn't want the humans to do it because they because one was enough or okay grudgingly too so yeah i think you're completely right okay so um no other living beings have knowledge or live forever except for the serpent whom even the bible grants is the wisest of all creatures why he even knows how to talk unlike any other creature except the gods and humans in fact he even knows that the gods are lying about adam dying immediately Righto. If he eats the fruit, the serpent's knowledge must be at least equal to that of the gods. Uh, one might suspect that the serpent has eaten from the tree of knowledge. Where else could the knowledge have come from? Well, you, you're quite right. That could very well be. I never even thought of that, but you, that could well be implied. On the other hand, it may be that uh, the serpent 
having such knowledge is a vestige of uh, an earlier version of the story in which the serpent was the god Nehushtan, uh, who had his own chapel in the Jerusalem temple. Uh, and uh, so he would have had the knowledge of the gods. But then how would he have had it? Uh, again, it boils down to what you say, that he was munching on some uh, knowledge fruit. So, yeah, very good point. Uh, and when the punishments are dished out, Adam and Eve and their descendants are cursed with death. But you know who isn't? Yep, the serpent is punished, but he isn't cursed with death. Apparently, he will live forever. The Elohim don't have the power to kill him, as if he had also eaten from the tree of life. Uh, yes, that's true, but uh, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, so they don't get the chance to start eating the uh, the life-giving fruit. And uh, if if it's if it has to be renewed, just one munch wouldn't do the trick. I mean, who knows how many years or centuries that would give you? So the serpent still presumably would uh, would have. Uh, exhausted the benefits uh, and would no longer be uh, entitled to uh, to uh, eat the stuff and would croak but uh, others have suggested that the the author does think of of all serpents as living forever unless you're killed of course unless you you grab the the uh, the garden hoe and beat its brains out, which is anticipated, right? He shall bruise your heel. You shall smack his head. Uh, but uh, the fact that the, the uh, serpent sheds his skin, uh, that's a kind of renewal. And it's possible that may be in mind there that, well, he doesn't die. He's renewed. He gets old looking and wrinkly. Eh, what the heck? Just get rid of it and you get to get a new skin. I wish we could do the same, right? Um, uh, let's see, Adam and Eve are driven from the garden, which is forever off limits to them and guarded by an angel with a flaming sword who must have gotten awfully wet when the planet flooded a few generations later. But you notice who gets to stay in the garden of the gods? Yep, once again, the serpent isn't exiled, but remains in the garden. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. One would think that as the instigator of the whole mess, he should have been driven out too, but apparently the serpent can't be driven out of the garden. That is beyond the power of the gods as well. Hey, look, you're, you're opening my eyes, just the serpent opened theirs. <laughs> you devil. Uh, good point. Yeah, it doesn't say he was kicked out. Hmm. Clearly the serpent is at least the equal of the rest of the Elohim and must originally have been one of them. The Levantine Loki, if you will, or Leviathan. Nehushtan, a rogue god who has the knowledge and eternal life of the rest of the Elohim and shapeshifts whenever. A chaos, yeah, here we go, a chaos serpent like Leviathan or Tiamat, only this is one the gods could not destroy. Well, you know, uh, in the uh, Gilgamesh epic and other, I'm sorry, the Enuma Elish and others, um, like, how does Marduk become the king of the gods of Babylon? Well, because the chaos dragons, who are the parents of the old gods, Enlil and Ea and the rest of them, 
uh, they they rise up, and the gods are powerless to stop them. And uh, Marduk, however, is feeling pretty frisky and says, look, I'm up to the challenge. Uh, I'll go out on the field of battle with Apsu and Tiamat and Kingu and all those guys. Uh, if uh, you will make me the new king of the gods, what about it? Sure, sure, anything you say. You just get rid of him, and he does. Uh, but yeah, th- those gods couldn't do it. They were, uh, they were afraid, and so you'd do have that uh, that piece of mythology, and since our uh, Genesis myths are rather fragmentary, uh, these pieces may have been in there. Okay, thank you, uh, Jason. Good stuff. You got a sharp eye. Um. Oh no! Don't tell me I don't have the name of the the Bible geek who sent this in. But somebody said, I remember the old History Channel special, Banned from the Bible, and it brought up the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees. What I've always wondered is why these books were never accepted by most of the biblical canons. I've never read these books myself. Uh, they're kind of tedious, but there's, there is uh, interesting stuff packed in there. Okay, he says, did any Eastern religious... Oh, let me... Uh, okay, let me... That's really a separate issue. Let me just deal with this in first. Well, um, partly it was because the sponsors of the so-called Deuteronomic reform... Um, um, tried to delimit the canon at least by uh, refusing to consider any new books, whereas there was an, there were other currents in Judaism, who we eventually find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, who had visions and wrote them down and created books like this, two very different kinds of Judaism as they uh, split. And uh, Margaret Barker talks about this a good bit, and the variety of myths about how knowledge came to humanity from the, the Watchers and the Sons of God, and whether it was, some thought it was a good thing, some thought it was a bad one, who knows. Uh, but yeah, there was, and, and this great book, The Third Temple, I or was it three temples? Oh my gosh, I can't remember. Um, that talks about uh, this big split uh, in uh, second century Judaism. I think that is when the Deuteronomic reform happened, the, the fusing of Yahweh and El Elyon, for instance. Uh, I, I, the uh, attempt to eradicate polytheism, uh, to ban images. Most people think that... Uh, this happened under King Josiah in the seventh century BCE. I hold the uh, sort of basing this on uh, Niels Peter Lemke. Uh, I think that no, uh, the Deuteronomic reform was much later. Uh, and uh, but at any rate, that's one of the big factors. It's like closed canon means not open to any more revelations. Uh, we got it all wrapped up. Thank you. We don't want you upset in the apple cart. Hey, everybody, I just had a dream where God told me there's four persons in the Trinity. Will you get out of here? Uh, and uh, so that's, that has something to do with it. Other Jews may have thought, look, uh, whether there could be new revelations or not, these books tend to contradict the old ones. Like, in fact, the Book of Jubilees is a kind of a rewritten substitute of the Pentateuch. 
Uh, and so there are differences. And some said, hey, wait a minute. If the traditional one is really the, the Torah of Moses, what the heck is this? In fact, the Manual of Discipline at Qumran, uh, the Dead Sea Scroll, that apparently is an attempt at a new Torah. In a sense, the Gospel of Matthew is. Excuse me. And uh, so that that uh, some say that's why Martin Luther kicked out the so-called deuterocanonical or apocryphal books that they're not all, not all, all bad, but there are things in there that uh, he thought were unorthodox. Um, so uh, I think those probably are the issues that it seemed a little too weird. Mm, let's see, let's see. Okay, uh, did any Eastern religious ideas end up in Christianity? I've always felt uh, that the concept of not of this world sounds very Eastern, since I don't see that kind of concept in Judaism or in any other religion in that region. Um, I think that uh, what wound up as mainstream Judaism that is Pharisaic, that is rabbinical Judaism in the late first century, I think that that was heavily influenced by Persian Zoroastrianism, almost to the point of replacing the earlier religion of Israel. Uh, when, uh, you know, the, the stories in Ezra and Nehemiah, when the uh, exiles, or really the uh, next generation of exiled Jews, come back from uh, what had become the Persian Empire, uh, they they shoved the, the native uh, Jews and Israelites, Samaritans, out of the way and said, uh, we got the government's backing, we're building a temple, we don't need your help doing it, we will decide what to do. And they created great ill will. Um, they the get this the Persian government sent Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, the and Ezra is called by a Persian title, uh, a scribe of the law of God or of heaven or something like that, and I have come to think that uh, those radicals are correct who say that uh, they pretty much imposed Zoroastrianism uh, on uh, on Jews and. Uh, they uh this is where eventual monotheism came from this is where apocalyptic maps of history came from that is the idea that they're different dispensations and uh they you can count up the uh the, the centuries and you can calculate when it's going to end and there's going to be a heavenly messiah uh who'll be born of a virgin and uh raise the dead for final judgment, the Seoshians or benefactor, and uh, the idea of, of a hell run by an evil anti-god, Ahriman, uh, th all these things end up in later Judaism and then Christianity and Islam. So I think almost the whole kit and caboodle is, uh, is Persian and Zoroastrian in origin, and that per that uh, Pharisee is simply another spelling of Parsi. It's not my discovery. I think uh, T.W. Manson um, talks about this in his book, little book, The Servant Messiah. And uh, this is why the Sadducees didn't buy what they had to say. They're saying, what? You, you guys aren't really even Jews anymore. What is this stuff? And uh, yeah, yeah. I, so I think, yes, it, it uh, became very Oriental. 
Judaism did also, some Jews, affirmed a belief in reincarnation, and that lasted in mystical Judaism for centuries. It sure showed up in Gnosticism, uh, which uh, is so close to types of Hinduism and Buddhism that you really have to take Christian Lintner's theories seriously that uh, Christianity and and before it, uh, like the Therapeutae and other mystical Jews, simply were uh, Buddhicized Jews and Christians, or even closet Buddhists. Uh, there, th- specific stories in the Gospels have amazing parallels uh, to uh, Buddhist stories, and I don't just mean ethical ideals. I mean what the Master says to his disciple, like the woman in the well story. Bultmann said that might well have been borrowed from a known Buddhist story of Ananda asking an outcast woman or lower caste woman for a drink at the well and so on, and there's several other astonishing parallels. So yeah, there's there's a lot uh, of that. The Epistle of James has this strange reference to the wheel of life. Uh, what is that? Well, maybe it's Eastern. And by the way, uh, I won't uh, gasp if you like to w- use the word Oriental. Uh, nowadays, oh, not supposed to use that word. Uh, why not? Well, because uh, Edwin Sa- Edward Said, a Palestinian radical uh, who uh, wrote a book called Orientalism, claimed that this was a kind of colonialist uh, derogation of Asian cultures as quaint and and funny and 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 uh, antique and uh, antiquated. I think that is just a lot of nonsense. Uh, I think Oriental uh, well conveys the the glamorous uh, beauty uh, and the the exotic alienness of all of these great religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. I don't want to pretend there's no differences between East and West. That homogenizes everything. Like uh, some months ago in a doctor's waiting room, I saw this woman in this fantastic uh, multi colored African outfit and out of nowhere I said your your costume is beautiful please don't ever start wearing our drab stuff uh, I, I love all of this and want to see it preserved and I think the word oriental is a kind of a tag for that showing respect for it we're Occidental in the West, they're Oriental, and uh, I let the two meet. That's uh, great. But uh, you're doing nobody any favors by making that a racist term. So I still speak of the Oriental religions and all of that, and I urge you to do so as well. Um, don't get bullied by left-wing zealots. Um, or right-wing zealots. There's certainly plenty of them around, too. Um yeah, okay, um, then uh, is organized religion just an elaborate scam? After all, claiming all kinds of rewards if you do this and do that uh, in an unknown afterlife based on unseen claims sounds kind of fishy to me. It seems like you can totally get away with fraud since it's impossible to back up such claims in the first place. It's pretty much impossible to prove such things because they are unknown. Yeah, uh, that is true, and there certainly has been a lot of cynical priestcraft uh, in the history of religions, where uh, uh, one of the popes is said to have uh, 
said in a off-the-record moment, boy, this fable of Christ has certainly made us a lot of money. Who knows if anybody actually said that. A good friend of mine once said that the nun told him in catechism, what's the matter, don't you realize it's all a joke? (laughs) What is going on there? Um, I'm sure there's been this chicanery, of course, but where's the line between deceiving and being self-deceived? Uh, it seems to me it's impossible to know unless you're a mind reader. And I have met very few people that I thought were uh, just kidding, that they knew better. Uh, there are some apologists I have debated uh, who I I got the impression anyway that they didn't care or know whether their arguments had validity. They were just arguing for, quote, our side, unquote. And that is a kind of cynicism uh, and uh, and a kind of priestcraft. But they were certainly doing it based on religious zeal that they, they really felt. So I, I don't know. Uh, and now you just have to keep in mind a lot of people, quote, think, unquote, uh, emotionally, as Captain Kirk said to uh, Dr. McCoy once, bones stop thinking with your glands. Yeah, people do that, right, all the time. Ask them why they have certain political views. Uh, and, uh, you know, you like Jesse Waters and uh, Jay Leno and others have done uh, in their Man on the Street interviews, it, it, the utter ignorance uh, of people is is just sobering. I mean, I, I sometimes feel like crying when I hear the incredible ignorance of of people who, who are not like stupid. They just are ignorant. There's a big difference there, right? And I mean, I'm I don't think I'm stupid, but I certainly am ignorant of many things. Well, uh, in the same way, a lot of people just assume it's their duty to their family or their upbringing or their culture to believe in the religion of it. And uh, it it used to function that way because religions were the sacred canopy, the thing that secured and sanctioned the values and laws of the society. And so to be a good citizen, you were religious. Uh, Piety didn't need to mean any more than that, just sort of saluting the flag. Uh, And that had a function, right? Uh, When you uh, urge people to be free thinkers, you know what you're doing, you're trying to herd cats or you're making them into cats that it's going to be hard to heard, there's a real conflict of values for me because I don't want the uh, the society to fragment and to, to be chaotic in its values and so forth. We're really suffering for that. My latest Zarathustra Speaks column is about that. But on the other hand, I don't want people to take things for granted. I want them to question authority and to be intellectually honest, so what are you going to do? I guess I think the Gnostics were right. Uh, There are only a certain number of people who really are going to climb to the level to realize they need to think for themselves, and we need to kind of watch out for such people and say, well, now that you realize there's a problem, let me me offer some advice. Okay. Um, Dr. Barton. I've been waiting a while to to do this one. Uh, Of course, all these. I've had them for so long. 
Uh, see what a large letter I'm writing to you in my own hand, Galatians 6.11. This short passage gets a lot of critical space, as it is often used to both support and reject claims that Galatians is a Pauline forgery, and that Paul's eyesight was failing him. What I just noticed that has not been in the discussions that I've seen is that Galatians use the word... Uh, uh, gramasin, am I leaving, leaving out a syllable? Gramasin. Uh, yeah, is that not as translated in the King James Version in some of the Bibles singular? Uh, it, does it not therefore refer to the letter itself and not the letters or the signature per se? I mention this because I noticed a ritual in the Greek magical papyri for one two one four five. Uh, for which it was noted that in this papyrus these three verses from Homer are written in exceptionally large letters. These verses, these verses are ascribed magical powers in Greek magical papyrus four four seventy through four seventy three and eight twenty one through eight twenty four. I just wanted to get some opinions if anyone else thought that it might be possible that Galatians reference to a large letter might be a reference to the magical, uh, sorry, holy power of this letter. Certainly much of the rest of Galatians 6 has the feel of phrases used to ward off evil, heal, and even exercise. I don't know, that seems like a bit of a stretch to me since uh, the writer, whether Paul or holy forger does immediately go on to say and in parallel passages says that he's doing this to authenticate the letter so you'll know this and this is one of those uh cheap fake pauline epistles uh no it's the real thing and uh I, I don't, it just, I got to always say, well, he expected the magical initiate to know what he meant, but it's virtually impossible to, uh, to lend probability to a theory about esoteric code. I have that problem with numerology and uh, things like that in the Bible. If it is secret, how do you know you've got the, uh, the inner truth? I mean, it's like a conspiracy theory, right? If they constructed a, an effective conspiracy, there's no way, there's no evidence that survives to betray it. So how would you know? So it seems possible, but I just don't see that as very likely in the context, which does lend an apparent pretty clear purpose to it. Uh, let's see, I believe this is... Yeah, okay, um, this is a further elaboration by the good Dr. Barton. Oh, I'm having trouble scrolling on this thing. A funny thing happened to me on the road to Galatia. I was reading Galatians 6 when I ran across one of Paul's Look at the Big Letters, which I write lines. In doing so, I noticed that some translation rendered this letters, while other rendered it letter. It seems that the word in this use is generally considered plural, neuter, dative. My idea that it might have referred to a single missive that was long enough to kill a person by forcing him to sleep and fall out a second-floor window, not that that's ever happened, was quickly dashed. And that's what happened to Eutychus in uh, the Book of Acts. I still think that it is possible that taking an analogy from the Greek magical papyri, uh, 
The interpolator was pointing out that the reader should pay special attention to sections written in large letters, as they can be used in prayers and exorcisms. Well, maybe, but, uh, you know, you, you can just call attention to stuff, as we still do, by putting it in all caps. When you do a whole letter in all caps, that's a pretty sure sign that you're insane, right? But uh, other than that, uh, why is it not adequate to say it's just stressing the thing? But anyway, he goes on, just the other day, however, an acquaintance, Don Pashuda, reformed me, I'm sorry, informed me that grama, the root, I believe, of grama sin, was elsewhere used quite often in the sense of bill or invoice. With that information, I formulated a new theory of these verses. These interpolated lines were not pointing out magical passages in Paul's letters or trying to provide false credentials for the epistles. They were Paul telling the churches to pay the rather large invoices for his visits attached to the epistles, uh, presumably no longer extant, in a timely fashion. Hey, premier apostle appearances don't come cheap. Again, that seems to me kind of uh, kind of a reach. Uh, so I I don't I'm not too enthused about that one. I have to admit, though uh, Dr. Barton has a keen eye and uh, uh, an active imagination in the good sense. Right, he thinks outside the box of traditional stuffy interpretations. Uh, he's working on a book. I've been badgering him to finish. Uh, where he he does he makes the best case anybody ever has for uh, hallucinogens and stuff in in the referred to in the Bible, uh, um, and uh, and uh, so he he's uh, he's just got his uh, scanner set differently and it's fascinating. If you've got that, you got a real uh, advantage in biblical studies. Okay, this is. Um uh, oh, I think I've got, yeah, this is from Andres Boss in Amsterdam, Holland. I'm not even going to try. I keep, I have trouble getting any kind of a phony Dutch accent. Uh, so I'll just uh, do it regular. I mean, I've heard... Uh, Dutch folks speak often enough, like, uh, oh, the, uh, the film director, uh, Paul Verhoeven, got a great Dutch accent. I much admire your work and ideas on debunking Christian mythic thinking. Though I was never raised with any religion, I have from a young age been interested in the history of the New Testament and the Christian religion. My ma main interest is focused on the authentic sayings of Jesus, quote-unquote, in trying to understand the original Zitzim Laban and their meaning before Christians reworked them into their narrative gospels. My main side interest is in the origins of the oldest parts of the Pauline epistles, where I much admire the work and viewpoints of Hermann Dettering. Oh, me too, the premier New Testament scholar of our day. I've become convinced that the Q sayings were not originally uh, used in a Christian way, and now I see them as tantric mystic instructions for a short-lasting, more or less failed tantric mystic mission with perhaps a historical Yeshua Jesus as the guru or master. 
uh, tantric mysticism can be found within different traditions, such as Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jainism, but has influenced many other traditions too, as illustrated by the etymological origins of Tao and Shindo. I have no idea of how it got into a Jewish setting. Perhaps there were contacts with India via the diaspora Jews there. Yeah, that's certainly possible. There were... There was uh, trade and travel between uh, India and, uh, and and Egypt and every place in, in between. I've tried to understand the me- original meaning of the sayings and found meanings for all but a few of them. The main question remaining on my mind at the moment is the reason for the variation in the saying about how to pray, in which there seems to have been a variation in using Holy Spirit in Marcion and early Luke and rule of God in Matthew and later Luke, you know, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew has uh, your your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luke, at least some manuscripts, of, of Luke and especially the Marcionite gospel have send your spirit upon us and sanctify us, which sounds more, I mean, that really sounds Lucan, right? <laughs> Replacing eschatology with uh, pneumatology. Yeah, so um, uh, let's see. This makes me wonder how this variation came about and in which phase in the use of the sayings. Uh, well, that's what I think, uh, that somebody, some Lucan scribe, uh, basically harmonized Luke, who had the spirit reference instead of the kingdom reference, to fit Matthew, who just had the kingdom. And uh, this would be very much like uh, the uh, the anti-apocalyptic saying in Luke, was it? chapter 17 someplace, where the disciples asked, or the Pharisees asked, when's the kingdom of God coming? And uh, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not coming uh, by the observation of signs, nor will men say, lo, here it is, or there it is, for the kingdom of God, or you might say, the world of God is within you. Well, that's like saying, don't ask for the kingdom to come, ask for the spirit to descend upon you, which is what happens in Acts and all that. So uh, there's no way to know this, but that's what I imagine happened. You had Luke, uh, like uh, Thomas, as uh, disillusioned with eschatology. I mean, that much is clear. Uh, See Conselman's Theology of St. Luke. And so he changed the original Q, which Matthew had uh, with the kingdom, he changed it to spirit, but scribes changed it back. No way to know. Right? Uh, I also wonder why the important prayers, Abba, your name be hallowed and your will be done, were left out in Marcion and Luke, as well as the text surrounding the prayers. You probably hear the uh, police alarm out there. I think it's the KJVGB, the fundamentalist secret police coming to shut us out. Anyway, um, why they were left out in Marcion and Luke as well as in the text surrounding the prayers. Um, I think that's uh, that wasn't in Q either and uh, probably reflects 
uh, Jewish synagogue prayers, Yochim Yeremias gave parallels where it, it says almost the same thing in synagogue prayers, and Matthew was clearly a kind of rival scribe to the Yavna scribes, and so I think he has embellished Q to, to Judaize it, which of course ain't a bad thing, right? There's plenty of treasure liturgically and otherwise in Judaism. With a number of sayings, I'm not completely sure whether I got it right because they seem to be so obscure. How I wish an old copy of Q could someday turn up from the desert cave to show us the original text. Well, Andres, let's hope we live long enough for that or that someone can make it up and make it so effective like certain other recently discovered phony gospels that will think we have the solution. So uh, you're probably glad I had uh, mercy on you and didn't do a fake Dutch accent there. Okay, um, okay, here's good old Dr. Barton again. Keep them coming. One of the dangers that I encounter in my exploration of the Old Testament is rabbit holes. My latest one started with my beginning an article on David's libation, drink offering, uh, to the dead, I believe, in 2 Samuel 23, 15-17. Along the way, I felt the need to more fully explore the meaning of katsir, uh, I don't know any Hebrew, uh, to harvest or reap in 23.13. Uh, let me read a couple of these passages. Right? Second Sam 23. Uh, let's see, let's see. Using the Bible, i they gave me to uh, use when we were taping uh, the gospel according to Christ, uh, what to Price uh, three years ago. Uh, sentimental attachment to it. 23, uh, 15 through 17. Uh, and David said longingly, uh, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Uh, then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to Yahweh um, and said, Far be it from me, O Yahweh, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. Reminds me of a scene uh, on Deep Space Nine. After uh, Cisco, Admiral So-and-So, and General Martok uh, are uh, standing in the ruins of uh, Cardassia Prime and... Uh, um, Martok had a year ago, a year before, had said to them, Mark my words, a year from now, the three of us will be drinking blood wine in the ruins of Cardassia. And so he's got his flask of blood wine there and pours the, the other guys uh, each a, a glass of it, a cup of it, and uh, the two Federation wimps uh, pour it out. They can't rejoice in this with uh, bottoms up for Martok. Uh, now, there's a guy that understands war. Um, but, uh, okay, this, uh, this is kind of similar. Um, okay, that led me to 2 Samuel 21, 8 through 10. What? That's 21, 8 through 10. 
The king, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, and Maholathite, uh, sounds like an ingredient on a cough medicine, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before Yahweh, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, even though it said in verse 7 that he had spared Mephibosheth, a little problem, sort of a scribal correction there, I'm guessing. Okay, um, yeah, where David captured seven of the remaining male rev relatives of Samuel, Saul, you mean, and turned them over to the Gibeonites as restitution for war crimes committed by Samuel in 21.8. The Gibeonites hung the men at the hanged, I think you say, the men at the beginning of the harvest, 21.9. Faithful daughter Ritzpah waited near the bodies from the beginning of harvest to the first rain, except that is not necessarily how the Hebrew text reads. Um, first of all, the Hebrew word translated as to hang, yaka, doesn't seem to involve hanging as a primary meaning. Instead, it seems to mean disconnect or sever. Since no tree or similar hanging device is mentioned in these verses, sever is not unreasonable. Another use of it is uh, in Numbers 25.4. And Yahweh said to Moses, Take the heads of the people and sever, formerly hang, them before Yahweh, before the sun. Note that uh, this was specifically ordered to take place before Yahweh. And where were the men of the house of Samuel severed, formerly hung? Before Yahweh. I therefore am proposing that the Gibeonites actually sacrifice the men of the house of Samuel to Yahweh, cutting their bodies apart as one would in the sacrifice of a sheep, goat, or bull. Ah, interesting. Uh, there is, however, more to this. A later line in 21.9 is usually translated along the lines of, they were put to death in the days of the harvest. However, the Hebrew is ha moto ya kat sir boy if, if uh, Bob Eisenman or somebody is listening to this or or uh, Rabob uh they're probably just cracking up at this uh, uh, which could translate to the death of the days of harvest thus the men of the house I'm sorry thus the men of the house of Samuel were used as a harvest sacrifice well, that much seems to be clear, right, on any translation. Finally, though less conclusively, Rizpah, in 21.10, waited by the bodies of her slain relatives from the beginning of harvest until the first rain. She protected the bodies against scavengers. Obviously, the Gibeonites tolerated her presence, but she did not gather up her relatives' bodies until the set time had passed. It may be worth noting that there is no indication whether the Gibeonites prevented her from doing so, or if she would not do so until a specific period of time had passed. Given that the signal for her to take the bodies was the coming of the first rains after the harvest, it seems likely that if this was indeed a harvest sacrifice, then the bodies needed to remain at the sacrificial spot until the harvest was over, likely as a way to prevent the rain from coming early and ruining the harvest. My conclusion? Two previously unnoticed instances of Jewish human sacrifice in the Old Testament. 
three hours working on translating and noting these passages, and I still haven't even got close to the libation passage. What a rabbit hole. By the way, you might, I don't really have anything to add to this, but I discuss this as a sacrifice in the uh, relevant section of uh, my uh, new book, Holy Fable, the Old Testament, uh, Undistorted by Faith. I just got some copies the other day. And anyway, um, I was puzzled by the idea that the Messiah, perhaps I should write the uh, quote-unquote Messiah, since as we know, there were lots of Messiahs, historical and potential. Uh, okay, the Messiah was to be the first son of a first son of so-and-so, so-and-so, back to David. This is obviously not the case since Solomon was not David's firstborn son. Actually, there seems to be a recurring motif in the Jewish Bible against firstborns, but that's a whole nother study. Yes, indeed. Uh, my understanding of the Lord's promise was that there would always be a son from David's loins on the throne, and that this qualified all purely patrilineal male descendants of David, so some cousin or nephew of the king could step in if that... Uh, king had no son. The standard story could skip a generation. Uh, but anyway, the standard story is that for as long as the Davidic dynasty was manifest, each king was the son or a son of the former. But in real life, dynasties are rarely able to produce sons so reliably, leading to troubles galore. Polygamy may have eased the way since Davidic Henry's would be relieved of oh yeah and eighth I am I am would be relieved of the brother or getting rid of Anne Boleyn oh Henry the eighth uh, rid of Anne Boleyn in order to proceed to the next potential son generator there was that story of Athalia the queen who killed off all the sons of her husband except inevitably one was secretly saved and eventually restored the male succession a highly dramatic and derivative story which would probably be frequently dramatized if the priestly judgment weren't that this king was an asshole who allowed worship and sacrifices at those pesky high places breaking the temple priest's stranglehold on that enterprise that uh, that uh, shutting down of the high places was economic monopolism in character was first made clear to me reading a great historical novel by L. Sprague de Camp set in the ancient Persian Empire called The Dragon of the Ishtar Gate, where the heroes uh, are going gradually down into Africa and they pass through Jerusalem and they're talking to a priest of Dagon who's on hard times and he said that uh, that they don't get much in the way of business anymore at their temples because the priests of Yahweh have cornered the market. I thought, okay, that's what's going on. On. Monotheism equals monopolism. Hey, this ultimately comes down to pointing out that by making Jesus the generated Son of the Almighty, the Christian mythology rules out his being the Messiah. God, after all, is certainly no descendant of David. Uh, Matthew and Luke. Whoops. Uh, just a second. I, my screen has gone blank as it insists on doing. Okay. Um. Matthew and Luke used their imaginations to make Joseph a David descendant, purely patrilineal in both cases, but then had to qualify Joseph as merely the apparent parent. 
That's an interesting movie, possibly. Can you imagine the apparent parent trap? I'm surprised that skeptics don't point this out very often. Well, actually, it... Oh, jeez, this was... Uh, I'm sorry, this was uh, not... Wait a minute... Oh, sorry, sorry. Everything after what a rabbit hole was Charles Power. Sorry about that, yeah. Uh, well, Charles, uh, apologists have had Excedrin headaches over this, and uh, you can tell that by the crazy lengths they go to. Like, even even Raymond Brown, shockingly, said, well, okay, we gotta stick with the virgin birth and the genealogy, so I guess they figured if Jesus was a, an adopted son of a Davidic heir. That'd be good enough. <laughs> You'd never be able to get away with that. Ooh. Oh, now from uh, Rabob. He, he says, the synagogue of Satan reference in Revelation. Is that a reference to Paulinist congregations of so-called Jews? Or is it something else? What does a geek think? That's assuming the geek does think. Uh, rather than just parroting stuff he's read. But um, it could be. Uh, Marcionites, of course, were the greatest of all Paulinists, and they called their meeting places synagogues. We actually have a lintel, I think, the one above the door in one of them, that says synagogue of the Marcionites. Uh, after all, it just means assembly hall, right? Uh, and uh, so that that's possible. I mean, notice that, as Bauer pointed out, Paul is not uh, one of the 12 whose names appear on the foundation stones, is it, uh, of the New Jerusalem. Uh, so that could well be. Uh, that, that might uh, well be. Oh, we're Jews too. Yeah, right. Sure you are. Uh, oh, the real Jew is not the one who's a Jew outwardly by circumcision, but inwardly. Oh, yeah, nice try. So that could well be that. But the uh, writer of Revelation may be uh, pulling that stunt and say, well, they, they claim they're Jews, but since they don't believe in Jesus, they haven't gotten in with God's prophetic program, so they're, they're not really Jews. We are. Uh I don't know. I mean, I, I'm almost inclined to go with the Paulinist slash Marcionite view. Uh, and uh, Or really, it could be, I mean, uh, the Yavna rabbis would probably have said that about Matthew. Yeah, he says he's a Jew. Right. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, here's another one from Dr. Barton. And uh, with this, I'm going to... Ooh, good gosh, this is long. Well, yeah, I will, uh, I will get this one and that'll be it for today he says oh most occult and multi-angled bible geek what am i the shining trapezahedron i still haven't read the entirety of second samuel especially as one unit that said absalom was always just a rebel king to me not that much different from most of the other crappy kings of the bible including saul that is not the case with second samuel 18 1 through 17 which covers the death of absalom i suspect that this came from a different tradition because it is a radically different view of Absalom and his followers than I've noticed elsewhere. One, David, having recovered his throne, sent his people out to track down Absalom and the rest of his people. Not really his army, just his people and his partisans. Uh, they spread out through the plains and the forest of Mount Ephraim. 
Two, first, the forest of Mount Ephraim seems to have a bit of a spooky reputation. When Joshua spoke of it, he described it as a place of Perizim and Rephaim. We already know that the Rephaim had a supernatural reputation. Who were the Perizim? We don't seem to know. I sure don't. Uh, but I suspect that the root is related to the fruit, peri, of the tree in the center of the garden. Genesis 3.3. You see what I mean about this guy? I never would have thought of that. Uh, this was also where Jonathan encountered divine honey, which may have transformed his people into something akin to lycanthropes to battle the Philistines. Boy, I don't remember reading that one. First uh, uh, Samuel 14. Gotta read it, though. I mean, it's not like the Bible doesn't have uh, satyrs and monsters and all that, but Anyway, three. Second, this battle is described uh, as a great slaughter. 20,000 men died. Yet, nearly every other time that the word for slaughter, magepha, uh, was used in the Old Testament and other sources, excepting those directly related to this incident, it meant plague. For, as for Absalom's death, first he was caught by the branches of terebinths and suspended between heaven and earth. This did not, however, kill him. 5. Next, Joab ran three spears or staffs into his chest. This did not kill him. What is this guy, uh, Rasputin? 6. Uh, next, Joab's ten armor bearers encircled him and slowly beat him to death. Uh, did they videotape it like Rodney King, I wonder? Uh, per seven, because, perhaps because of this terrible vitality and resisting damage that would have killed even a great warrior, they took his body deep into the forest, threw him into a pit, and covered him with a great mound of stones, as one did a person possessed by evil spirits. Eight, once that was done, the entire crowd of Israelites, the ones hunting Absalom's people, fled from the pit, and presumably the forest, and went to their tents, except that 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 may not be the correct translation. Ohe, I guess it's right, or Ohel, I guess it is, O-H-E-L, can mean tent, but it can also mean tabernacle. I th Boy, I love that word. It's sort of like pinochle somehow. I think that they all fled to their tabernacles to pray, sacrifice, and ward off any possibility that the spirit of Absalom would find them and wreak vengeance upon them from beyond the grave. On the whole, this sounds like a sort of ending that one might have expected from a great and mighty Lord Lovecraft story. Boy, that is fascinating. I'm going to read through this thing again with all this in mind, and I urge Bible geeks to do so. That is really fascinating. It's sort of making uh, Absalom into the Gerasene demoniac. Uh, fascinating. Got to take a look. Thanks, Doc. And again, let me repeat... He claims not to be the Dr. Barton character from The Creature Walks Among Us, but I am still not persuaded. I know our Dr. Barton doesn't look anything like that guy, but you never know. Uh, okay, with now that is, that is a great segue to a new episode of The Lovecraft Geek, which I'm about to begin. Uh, so... Uh, once you're done listening to this one, maybe you can switch over to that one. Now, that is also carried by those great folks at uh, Mythicist Milwaukee. Well, I got plenty more uh, questions and uh, more coming in all the time, and that's good. <laughs>
don't give me a break. Uh, keep sending them, and I will try to get through them. Boy, it sure is fun. So, thanks a lot, and I will see you soon on the next exciting episode of The Bible Geek.